What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Weirdos podcast, where one and a half white men with English degrees talk about movies for way too goddamn long. We hope you're doing okay out there in the nonsense. And today, speaking of nonsense, or I guess just weirdness, we are talking about Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. the 1999 film from Stanley Kubrick, the master himself, the last movie he ever made. And we're doing this because I've never seen it. Somehow, some crazy how, I've never seen Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> it does. It's, it's one of those things where it kind of doesn't make sense to me that I've never seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, do you remember when it came out? Like, do you remember the ads and everything for it and the billboards with, like, the kissing? Um. Well, I was 12. Okay. So, no. You would have been, what, like, 9? I was, like, like that? 10. 10. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. So you were like little <laughs> ten-year-old Alex, wide-eyed, like driving your. Uh, I can see. Yeah, you I was driving in the back of your mom's sedan, <laughs> just like looking up with your with your wide eyes, your wide childish glee eyes, at like this big old poster of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And yeah. that is when you got your first boner. <laughs> nah. Maybe no. No, but that that is a uh, definitely. Like it was, it had a big ad push. I remember it was like probably around that time and around like the Blair Witch Project was the first time I started to become aware of like movies and the different styles of advertising. And it was a big thing because I think Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were like dating at the time. They're married. Okay, they were married. Yeah, there are some stories about like we all know Kubrick is kind of a madman. Yeah. When it comes to like his perfectionism and the way that he could torture actors. Yeah. There's the famous example of Shelley Duvall, I believe her name is. Um in the is Shining. That right? In the Shining. Yeah. yeah, who like she was horribly traumatized by the experience of working with Kubrick. Um there are many documentaries about this if if the listeners want to check that out. But I guess for this one it was a crazy long shoot, something like 400 days, and he had he went to he had Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise go to these like really intense couples therapy sessions mm-hmm. that he sat in on as well and like have them divulge their like deepest darkest desires and secrets and like I don't know, fucked up personality <laughs> traits to each other. Yeah. And apparently this is like, it went so deep into their psychology that even though they're not together anymore, they have sworn to never tell anybody what was divulged in those sessions. I don't know. I don't know if I, like, I love Kubrick. You know, I love laying it down for the art and everything like that. But this is, this just like reeks and kind of screams of like senile old man artist, right? Just like running on just his fumes of all of the gassed up career that he's had. You're talking about the movie itself? No, 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 no. I'm talking about just Kubrick and hearing this story right now about, okay. about Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um, yeah, he did some other weird shit where 
he wanted them to uh, like the whole movie is based upon this weird distrust between their two characters. Mm -hmm. So he did things where like, you know how there are those brief moments where Tom Cruise like imagines, I guess, Nicole Kidman having sex with that sailor guy. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick did like four days of shooting with her doing explicit sexual, you know, positioning with this guy and didn't allow Tom Cruise on the set and didn't allow Nicole Kidman to like talk about what happened yeah. during the filming of those. It's And it fomented this like weird distrust between them in real life. Like Kubrick got, he was on a different level in terms of like making people into their characters kind of. It's like method directing, right? Which, yeah. <laughs> it's like forced method acting. Yeah. It's fucking insane. It's it's fucking insane. I mean, for the movie, if since you asked me that, I mean, I think it obviously, I think it had a great effect. <laughs> I mean, the movie is, I, I really like the movie. I think it's good. I think it's, I think it was different enough too, right? For the time that it was coming out in, that it was like really making a pretty interesting and artistic statement. And I think it's a classic like Kubrick movie for him to kind of end on. It's like a good, it's a good bookend for a pretty intense and stellar career. There are some moments in there that are insane, but yeah, I don't know. I, I like this movie. When did you first see it? Um, Not when I was 11 or 10, right. uh, but I think I first saw it maybe a year out of high school. So I was like 19. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. When you're starting to explore the sort of weirder side of cinema. I had watched Full Metal Jacket, right? I had watched um, The Shining. So, I don't know. I There was like a certain aspect or vibe to exploring Stanley Kubrick movies that I always thought was really interesting. Because his movies were always so all over the map, right? Talking about color schemes with some of our newer directors like Fincher and Nolan and things like that. He didn't really have one. Like, he, he would just make movies that seemed to all be good. And he would try new and different things in each one, right? What, like, whilst being a perfectionist. He was kind of like the idea of, like, the jack-of-all-trades film master. But instead of being the master of none of them, he, like, was like, no, I'm going to be perfect at every single <laughs> one of these things. Yeah. Does the Does the idea, like, the archetype we have of the perfectionist director who does a thousand takes, is that, was Kubrick, like, the pioneer of that? I'm I mean, I think he was one of them, but I I feel like I heard a lot about um, Alfred Hitchcock was pretty brutal of a yeah, person to work under yeah, as well. That's I true. mean, not to mention probably just the disgusting advances that he would make on his young actresses that he would oh, cast. Oh yeah, Hitchcock, right? <laughs> Hitchcock, glorious director a lot of the time, but really not the best to women. Yeah. Just must be noted. Yeah, just not like a good person, maybe. And yes, you can say, and I will say, yeah, he was from a different time. And I, I don't mean that in a defense at all. And I don't even mean it as an excuse. It's just straight up. Contextual. You, yeah, know. you can just imagine how he probably was, right? Like, that's just the stuff that's leaked out that we know of now. But I've heard that he was also, I mean, when it came to the craft, he wasn't playing around either, you know? Um, David Lean's productions would be fucking crazy to work on just because of the sheer scope 
of them like no we're gonna blow up a bridge today right like you'd have to go live in morocco for like two years yeah, exactly <laughs> to finish a movie with him yeah so i i mean but as far as like takes and as far as like getting really down to the micromanaging level of just like now that beat of sweat didn't roll off your temple like i wanted it to we're gonna retake this it's like it's kubrick is probably the most notorious right yeah i was reading a fair amount about this film after I finally watched it last night. And I it is interesting when you hear that he did like 200 takes for certain scenes. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, why? Because, I don't know, some this, this movie is great looking, but it's not like Barry Lyndon. I'm not mm-hmm. sitting there like, whoa. No, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's mm, okay. Maybe I should, maybe we should draw the camera back. So, Jesse Ketman, me, I've never seen this for some reason. Uh, it just escaped me. I don't know if it's because I just didn't like the poster. It just looked like a romance movie. But even then, fairly early on, obviously, I knew its reputation as a weird movie. And it just sort of lingered on the periphery as a movie that like, I knew I needed to watch, but for some reason just never got around to. Mm-hmm. I think we all have those, and it's a pretty substantial list. Um, but finally watching it, I thought it was good. I thought it was, you know, it's very Kubrick, but it felt kind of minor in a sense. And I don't know if that's to do with the era or my own expectations, because I thought it would be way weirder. Okay. I definitely thought it would be weirder. And maybe like more epic of a scale? More epic? I thought... It, I just expected it to do more, I Got think, it. because it sets up this relationship and you're like, okay, there's some weird tension going on with these two and I'm not exactly sure what it is, although they, they definitely have some, I don't know if it's sexual repression or just sexual frustration, but they're both clearly interested in the possibility of having sex with other people. Mm-hmm. And then you have Tom Cruise. He goes into the hooker. Yeah. Um, and then Nicole Kidman calls him and she's like, are you going to come home? And he's like, no, I still have stuff to do. He's lying to her. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go to bed. And you're like, okay, Tom Cruise is off the hook. He's going to go have sex with this hooker now. And I'm thinking, is this something he does often? Like uh, the interiority of his character is very mysterious to me. Like, and then he doesn't have sex with her. He just leaves. And I'm like, what, what is going on with these characters? Her performance is very weird. The movie finally took off for me when it reaches the mansion, the famous mansion, which even if you don't know the plot of this movie, you know that like sort of the content of that just through osmosis. Oh yeah. Where it's like the the eyes wide shut thing, the mansion full of people fucking with masks on (laughs) and weird stuff. And that was cool. I liked that because it was weird and interesting. And it it gave me like 20% David Lynch vibes. Yeah. You know, like when you watch a David Lynch movie and it, it's mm-hmm. like stretching your brain with weirdness. I got 20% of that and I was like, that was cool. It probably would have played crazier in the era if I had seen it in 1999. Um, and then afterward, it's like, it's just it lingers upon the threat 
of are they watching me are they not are people disappearing because of them or are they not and then it just kind of ends and i was like okay that was a good kubrick movie i wish it did more yeah it's 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 a weird like it's an unexpected end to a career is what i think interests it me like so much and the lynchian aspect of it i i was gonna ask you like i always thought like i was like is kubrick was he leaning into this lynchian kind of thing before or what like or is he in other films no, no 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 well not in other films i don't think he really I don't think he does that much like no. Harper on that level. When we when we describe Lynchian, it's not just weird, it's a totally different area, right? But <laughs> yeah. it's also like this film, I feel like he was flirting with a new era of filmmaking, of storytelling and how you like represent things on screen. And I think that he was kind of leaning into the world that David Lynch was cultivating at the time. Um, later on, obviously, you know, Lynch came after Kubrick, so he owes a lot of his influence and everything like that to him. But at the same time, Lynch was still doing his thing. And I'm not saying Kubrick thought of Lynch when he was doing this film, but there's something so... I don't know, this, this film reminds me of the game as well. Uh, the Fincher film that we watched. Oh, yeah. That's a point. I was thinking some somewhere along the line, I was like, is this a Truman Show type situation? <laughs> yeah. Like, it felt weird. I was like, is he being watched? Are people playing with him? Yeah. Like, I didn't really know. It's almost like noir, right? But instead of a detective story, and instead of even really a romance, it's a marriage and the driving like energy and dynamism of the film is sexual energy, sexual lust, and like the d- idea of being cheated on or being unfaithful, right? So yeah, but the, it's like that's how the that's the noir that it's set in. So that that's how it unfolds, right? But like you said, it isn't typically like another noir where those films do stuff right when you said i want this film to do something those films are so well like they start well they have rising action they end so like nice and wrapped up and packaged and things like that you know so i don't know yeah it's it's more evocative visually than it is um narratively or thematically yeah don't get me wrong the 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 thematics are pretty rich in terms of just exploring sensuality and that idea of what if you're cheated on and like um feeling the passion of that like you really feel the eroticism in this film and the lust and things like that so it's very lavish sensually mm-hmm. but narratively it's i dare say kind of overly simplistic um, to the point where I was like, weird. It was weird. That was weirder to me than the quote unquote weird stuff in the film. Cause I thought it would just be a more interesting narrative. Like you brought in the game. That's a movie that takes all sorts of twists and turns. This movie has like two turns. Yeah. It's like Tom Cruise decides to go to the party. And then what happens after the party? I was to answer your question about him. Like, does he do it a lot? I don't think he does. I think he, 
he was like relatively normal or he thought that he was relatively normal. And when him and his wife are getting high together, right? It's like early on in the movie. Um, she has that, they have that conversation yeah. about the soldier and he, that kind of piques his interest. Yeah, because he try, he's jealousy. like trying to play like the high road, right? Where he's just like, oh, I'm not jealous. Like the other men are attracted to you, you know, like, and he's like, because I think that women, what does he say? They're like, he's oh, like, he they're makes the deadly mistake. <laughs> he makes the deadly mistake of telling a woman what woman, what women think. Yeah, exactly. He says something. Don't do like, that, fellas. We don't know. He like mansplains <laughs> something. Yeah. Right. And then she like totally is like, I think he says something like, oh, women just naturally don't want to cheat. They always want one guy. And she goes, um, actually, <laughs> it's like, he's saying that women don't have that, that same like sex drive yes. as men do. Where yes. It's like, we just want to fuck. Yeah. Women don't. And she's like, brother, let me tell you something. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let me shatter your world a little bit. In which he, it does. Right. And it's, it, it's almost like I, I always wondered and saw this movie later on after I'd seen it the first time. I was like, man, this is like just the breakdown of a male ego. And like, it's it's a weird and debaucherous few nights for Bill. And for some reason, as his character comes in, maybe it's Tom Cruise too, playing him, that's having this effect on me. But he doesn't strike me as a character who, who does this often. So okay. I feel I like this that. was like a new foray into something that was sparked by like a vicious rage of jealousy internal rage right like he didn't flip out or anything like that but like i don't know i think you're right uh looking at it i think you're right um i think your analysis is on point but it is telling that i had the question i wasn't sure and i don't know if that's down to the direction or the performance it's hard exactly to say maybe the script i don't know it is interesting that kubrick died four days after he presented final cut as well. So it's, yeah. I don't know if like some of this might have been amended. I'm not trying to like jump into a whole different topic, but I wonder like what the final, final cut would have been. Like it's hard to say. Maybe it would have been edited a little bit differently. Right. Like death, death at the door has got to influence any decision, no less an artistic one. Right. Like, I mean, he just keeled over. He had like a heart attack. Like this movie killed him. They shot for 400 days. He finished it and then he just keeled over. That's insane, right? It's just, crazy. Like your body is just probably like shutting down. I'm sure there were signs too that he just was ignoring. You know, like the same thing happened to George Lucas, right? And they had to get uh, Irving Kirshner in to do um, Empire Strikes Back because he had like a pseudo basically like a, a heart attack right like his body was like shutting down so much that it like basically simulated a heart attack um and kubrick is way more of a perfectionist than george lucas oh 100 obviously right like <laughs> fucking obviously yeah. um so it's like with kubrick like i was gonna ask you actually i'm glad that you brought it into this point like some some parts of this film and even more so now that you've told me about these therapy sessions um it almost feels like over-directed. Like, and do you think that's even possible for for that to happen? Like a movie becomes, over direction is for sure a thing, right? And like, yeah, with Kubrick, I can't imagine what that looks like. But if I had to choose a movie, it would be this one probably, because the storyline and the plot gets a little muddled, right? And we were talking about 
the the film we talked about last week it has issues with the theme it had issues with the plot not necessarily because they were bad they just like seemed absent or the movie wasn't sustenance like it wasn't it didn't have enough enough sustenance to show us where these themes were and didn't show them clearly yeah it was overdone and underdone in different areas that created kind of an interesting mess but a mess yeah um i don't know i think maybe this suffers from the opposite where it's it is overly long and doesn't offer quite enough for me to sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I still feel like it was a, a rewarding and rich experience. I don't want to give the sense that I didn't like it. It is Kubrick, and it is Kubrick after having made all of his, you know, classic movies. So the filmmaking obviously is going to be great. The The vibe of the movie is really enrapturing. Like, you're really hypnotized by it. Of course, especially I want to bring in the use of diegetic into non-diegetic score, Mm -hmm. which sort of haunts the second half of the movie where if you don't know what diegetic is, it's when the the soundtrack of a film is within the world of the film. So it's like someone playing a piano in this case in the movie. And then it becomes non-diegetic when those, when that soundtrack is not within the world of the movie. It's within the world of like just the edit, you know? It's so, just for the audience. Like the characters the don't audience. hear it at all. Exactly. So those little piano notes that his friend is playing at the Eyes Wide Shut party, uh, the sex party, becomes the score for the rest of the movie pretty much. Mm-hmm. So it has this interesting like lingering effect where you don't know if that guy's dead or not. So it has that effect of mystery and sort of solemnity that casts a shadow over the film. But, yeah, what, what was I talking about? <laughs> this is the danger of me going off on side tangents, which the, I do uh, so easily. You were talking about the sound in relation to the over or under directing from Cooper. Oh, over and under directing. Yeah, so there were certain... I think dialogue scenes in this movie that felt very weird to me. And it might be the fact that these characters have have said this dialogue 200 times that day Mm -hmm. where it just felt unnatural and too heavily pause ridden. I don't know. It felt maybe over directed, but certainly artificial in a sense. Did you get that impression at all? I've struggled with this question about this film for a long time. I don't know where it comes from. I'm usually pretty good, I feel like, at spotting where the problem probably comes from when it comes to dialogue, because I'm obsessive about it in, in films. And I just I just don't know if Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were in the right headspace. I used to think that they were not capable actors for this film, but I, I take that back, and I actually think that both of them are. I just don't know if, like... I mean, 400 days is a long time, right? They could have started the film out in the right headspace, but but like something with the way that they deliver their lines, especially those two characters, Bill and Alice, it just, it, it seems almost like Stepford Wivey, right? Which is interesting because she's in the remake, but um, I don't know. It Something is a little off. It almost feels like a dream. It almost feels like it's surreal. Like the whole movie feels like it could be just an encapsulated dream, right? Like, 
Yeah, she mentions that at the end. I know. Kind of. She's like, it could be if it's a dream or an actual thing. So maybe that's a nod to that that you're talking about. The fact that it yeah. kind of feels dreamlike. I mean, conversations that I remember specifically that I've had personally in dreams have always been a little cryptic, right? And like weird. But at least how I remember them. I don't, I like, at least how I, I kept that memory or those memories over the course of years and whatnot, that I remember the language being cryptic, but dreams in themselves have been made cryptic by humans for a very long time, right? So I don't know. There is something weird about the dialogue, but what did, what did you mean exactly about it? Uh, it just felt stilted at times. Okay. I don't know. It could be, and it could be to do with what you're saying in terms of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and their performances, because I first picked up on this when I was watching her, and her performance to me was very weird in this movie. It was... I had a lot of trouble figuring out who her character was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And same with him to a lesser degree, but they both kind of remained mysterious to me. And like I said, I don't know what that's due to exactly, whether that's performance or script or acting, but I had trouble figuring out their interiority, especially of her. I'm like, what is your motivation? Like, who are you? Mm -hmm. You know, even if you can't explain who a character is, sometimes you just have a really good sense of who they are. And she especially remained totally at arm's length to me. Yeah, I agree. To the point where, yeah, I don't, so it's hard for me to understand what the or to 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 dive under the skin of a conversation when I am struggling with character motivation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I get Bill's character much more than I get Alice's for sure. It, Bill is pretty easy to pin, honestly. Um, he's like a medical professional. He wants to like kind of move up in the world. He wants to aspire to be bigger. I guess um, he he just seems I don't know. Bill seems like the guy who's like everything is going great for you when it's really not type person. But Alice's character seemed a lot more. I don't know. I don't want to say hurtful, right? Um, I just think her character seemed colder. She seemed colder and kind of unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> like like I don't know if that was intentional or not. That's that's the thing. I'm like I'm I'm wondering what like if I'm just sort of reading into it like that or if she's supposed to be warmer, I don't really know. Honestly, I've always thought Nicole Kidman was kind of a cold <laughs> just a cold presence or aura in general. Um You know that this is the third movie we've talked about her in the span of a month? It's kind of weird. We had uh, the Northman. Oh yeah. Where we talked about her lovely plastic surgery. Uh-huh. And then in the summer Sickness chat cast. We talked about the quick and the dead. Okay. I wouldn't have thought we'd end up talking about Nicole Kidman so often. I mean, she's <laughs> a big, strange. she's a big time actress. She's definitely one of the bigger ones. Um, oh, dude, in the nineties. Oh my god, huge yeah. sex icon. Yeah, yeah. So, I was gonna say that the ending too doesn't really give anything to her character either. She wants to fuck. I know. I know. We need to fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I like that that's the last line of dialogue to ever be in a Kubrick film. I know, right? And it's like, is is 
is that it then is this movie just about like a married couple that went kind of cold in the bedroom that all of a sudden had these experiences and is now able to just kind of re-spark some young vivacious energy of the loins you know so, so, so <laughs> yeah it's definitely a confusing one right we talked about with Cronenberg, we were like, what's the ultimate point of this? Uh, like, what's the theme that overrides the others in yeah. that film? And what is it for this film? You know, is it is it just that? Or is it is it the sort of commentary on what happens during parties of the rich and powerful? I think or something commentary. like that. Or is that just in the background? I mean, I think commentary is a good way to put it, for sure. Because uh, making it like, it's not like they're... He wasn't really advancing a theme really hard, I feel like. So it is more of like a commentary. It's like a dancing around of subjects, right? Rather than being extremely definitive. I think it yeah. really just falls along the ideas of like cuckoldry, sex, the idea of like the differences when it comes between men and women or the perceived differences of men and women when it comes to sexuality. But it doesn't necessarily say anything about him, right? It's just like, here's yeah. an experience of two people that are dancing through these themes together. Mistrust, failing marriage, sex, all that all that jazz. And, and it is the, interesting on... Oh, sorry. No, yeah. Sometimes I don't know if you're pausing because you're done. Or no, you're, you're good. Still thinking. <laughs> and in the end, it's like they're, they're just awoken now and they're like oh now we can now we can have fun sex i guess right I, now that they now that they recognize that they're lucky in their situation mm -hmm. like her little spiel at the end it's like well we lived through all this craziness whether it's a dream or not like we sort of understand where we sit in the world yeah and now we can just get get to the banging without any of the like baggage over our heads so it's really a nice coming-of-age story for a couple, right? Yeah, I guess. Something like that? A coming-of-mid-age. <laughs> like A coming-of-mid-age, yeah. getting over the, the, the sort of youthful mistrust of things, getting to know like who each other are, I guess. I could buy that. I could buy that as a reading. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it didn't really go deep into the society, right? The, like, secret no. sex society. Yeah, so that secret society bit, that whole part, is simultaneously the most interesting and the most frustrating part to me. Because that was the whole, like... That's what I knew about the movie, right? I knew it had Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and that it did, like, weird, freaky, psychedelic sex stuff. So I, I went in with a certain expectation... And maybe it's an expectation that was unfair because I've seen a lot of weird movies. Mm -hmm. like even in the last few months, we've talked about fucking Titan, Crimes of the Future. And I wanted this movie to be so much weirder than it was. And I wanted an exploration of that society. And it felt like I say it's the most interesting and the most frustrating because when he goes in there, it really scratched my itch of oh shit this is this is interesting and creepy and weird and like psychedelic kind of mind bending mm -hmm. when you have those people like fucking with those masks on and some of the masks are super strange looking yeah and the the juxtaposition 
of a creepy like demon mask over like a beautifully sculpted female or male body that's naked is like an interesting juxtaposition and it creates an image that plays with your brain but i don't know if this is to do with a like i said the fact that i've seen so much weirder movies than this or because we now know that this is probably like a really 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 tame version of what actually happens in parties of the rich and powerful yeah <laughs> like it, it just seems like it almost feels like probably like a kindergarten version like we know that epstein exists like we live in a post epstein world exactly that which points to probably a whole lot of these kind of organizations that happen that we don't even know about still. Oh no, yeah, I that wanted this to... feels like it feels like I don't know, kind of baby town. One hundred percent. No, yeah, like I, I always, whenever I watch this movie in the Epstein, post Epstein, Maxwell, you know, Weinstein stuff, I like think now. When I watched this movie, I was like, did you know, or did you like? Are you just hinting at it? Like, are you subtly trying to tell us something? It's interesting because it's based on a, a book, right? That Kubrick called like the perfect film adaptation. Like it was, oh. he was like, this thing is like, it's the perfect text for film adaptation about sexual relations. It's called Dream Story. Um, okay. And it was written in the 20s. And it's about like early 20th century Vienna and a doctor and basically the same thing right and you can tell that like a lot of it's probably influenced by the explosion of dream exploration sexual exploration that was started by freud and jung and all Mm -hmm. that right so in the 60s kubrick gets the filming rights for it and he's like this is perfect this is fucking you know i'm ready to go obviously shit happens the 90s roll around he's like all right let's do this so it's interesting because he made the film a little more racy than the book, right? I mean, obviously the book came out in 1926. Film comes out comes right. out in the 90s. And then I think now in 2022, exactly what you just asked, right? Just like, wait a second. If we are to believe what we're supposed to believe now and we know what has been happening in Hollywood for decades, I'm like, the 90s was probably like a, a good like heyday for these fuckers. Right, because it was oh, like, yeah, no one no was, like, was sniffing before around. Before me too, they were, yeah, they were under their invisible cloak. Yeah, I'm sure. Pre-internet, um, you know, pre pre-technology, yeah, pre-proliferation of internet for exactly. sure. Um, a lot less ability for people to poke into it all. Yeah, I don't know. It felt tame. Yeah. At the, at the same time as being the most interesting part visually and very beautiful and it's like weird Kubrick way. I know. That looks like a painting, you know. By the way, remind me to talk about paintings if I forget in this movie. Yeah, I don't at the same time as feeling kind of tame for the time or for feeling tame for the time that we're in now comparatively. It's also like it came out 20 years after David Lynch made Eraserhead. I know. You know, like we brought up Lynch earlier and a lot of his like really, really weirdo movies came well before um, Eyes Wide Shut. Like Blue Velvet was in the 80s, um, I believe, or early 90s. Yeah. So 
uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I wish it had explored it more, and I'm not quite sure what else to say about it, other than it, like, felt kind of tame. Yeah. And I was surprised. Well, it's funny because Kubrick was born 28, right? Oh my god, really? Yeah. Oh yeah, wow. And so Lynch is... I don't want to say Lynch is, like, too much younger, um, but... He's 46, 1946, right? So it is enough time to be considered like a almost different generation. And I mean, Lynch is weirder in his own respect, but also maybe because of the generational gap and where Lynch grew up watching movies and being more like attuned to the new themes of art, and more willing to explore the new themes of art, less conventional, yeah. less traditional, he gets to a level that's even weirder, right? Um, which I think is pretty natural. You know, the generations subsequent always seem weirder to the ones prior. Like, it's like yeah. those fucking Zoomers or, or whatever they are now. Um, right, and I don't want to give the impression that, like, I think that he, that Kubrick is trying to rip off Lynch, or oh, that no, no, these sh- that, that these two things should necessarily be uh, like buttressed against each other. All I'm saying is, like, in terms of my own expectation of a weird movie, this didn't go very far mm-hmm. because of other things that had already come out. David Lynch is just a a really good example of weirdness in general. No, yeah. So that's what that's what feeds into my question kind of at the beginning of the episode where I was like, does it feel like Kubrick was like, because he's getting older and he was like, you know what? I've already had a pretty good career. I'm going to try something a little different. You know, it was like he was leaning into it. Right. He like stuck his shoulder into that space, but kept his very pretty organized painting like visual aspects of all of it. Right. And didn't keep it too crazy or didn't make it too crazy, but kept it rather tame. So it always felt like to me he was leaning into something weird, but never quite going all the way in. Yeah, I don't know. He did spend 400 fucking days on it, and it gave him a heart attack that killed him. So clearly he really cared about the project. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's the first movie he'd made in 12 years as well. Full Metal Jacket came out the year I was born, 1987. And little Jesse was 12 by the time old Stanley Kubrick came out with another movie. Snaring Tom Cruise banging. <laughs> I don't know what his thought process was. It's pretty fucking arcane to try to figure out Kubrick. There are whole documentaries of people trying to figure out what Kubrick was thinking because he was like a genius, like a bona fide genius. There were points where apparently he was so bored with filmmaking that he, like, people theorized that he put in all these subliminal signs that make, you know, um, the Shining into like an allegory of the death of the American Indians. Uh-huh. It's fucking crazy, like <laughs> the the things people read into with Kubrick. Oh, one hundred percent, man. He definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what Kubrick thought. What I what I did think, apropos paintings, because there are paintings on like every wall mm-hmm. in this whole movie, like every single wall, no matter where you are. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I don't know anything really about art history. I know I like Goya and Bosch. That's about it. Okay. But I would hazard a guess that there is some like weird meta narrative that you could construct out of this movie just by the paintings on the walls. And that if you're aware of what art, like art history and what different pieces of art signify, 
you could probably draw out like a whole lot of stuff from what's on the walls in this movie. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up because the paintings are, are good and they're actually paintings that are done by Kubrick's wife. <laughs> really? Mm hmm. What? How did I not read that? All of them? I think most of them. Um, several of the paintings in their home. In Bill and Alice. Some in the, of them. In the apartment. I'm surely not all of no, them. No, no, or no. Or even most of them. There it, are so many. In the apartment where they live, a lot of them are, are by her. Okay. That's a lot of like landscape and very good, very good paintings. I can't remember exactly. There's but like I know one that with in the house the, that I really liked that has like a garden in front of it and it's like by their like dining room table. I really like that one. Yeah, well maybe that throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into my thought process there. But maybe not. Um because when you're in the like the mansion, the sex mansion, mm-hmm. all those paintings are really like baroque, like sort of classical and I don't know the right words for paintings. I really don't. There but are, they have that sort of romantic darkness to them that I'm sure that those are actual paintings, you know? Oh, no, Known you paintings, know I should say. There actually are, like, some famous artist paintings in them, for sure. Like, yeah, 18th, 19th and century paintings, for sure. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Um, leave a comment below if you know what the these paintings signify in the context of the film. Yeah, no one's interesting, do actually... <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at a sequence right now of some of the paintings that are by real artists. And it's interesting how they sequentially start to get more modern. So I'll start off with the 18th century one. It's like an Italian one in Venice. And then by the time he's in, like, towards the end of the film, you start seeing ones that are a little more abstract in, like, offices and stuff like that. So I don't know if that speaks to anything, but it could be. I'll bet you somebody has spent, like, thousands of hours figuring this out somewhere. Yeah, seriously. If we could, I would read that article, you know. I bet it informs it. Because, like, when you're dealing with Kubrick, especially sort of later Kubrick, you have to know that there's, like, all these hidden details and motifs for the keen eye. Or maybe just to please himself. Oh, yeah. You know, maybe that things that are never meant to be construed by, like, an audience. So did you like it, though? I liked it. I was, it's probably one of my least favorite Kubrick films. Um, but even like a lesser Kubrick movie is still heads and tails above most cinema. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, but it didn't go far enough. Maybe I need to watch it again. It's definitely a very lavish production. Oh, yeah. Great, great cinematography, of course. It's crazy that they built all those New York sets because Stanley Kubrick was notoriously afraid of flying. So whenever you see, like, the streets of New York, those are fucking, like, full sets that they built in England. That's insane. Which is wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is insane. <laughs> well, it goes into also this idea. You talked about, earlier you talked about how there was, like, a hype surrounding this movie. Yeah. There were billboards. And I was reading about how people were guessing the details of the movie. Like there were all these plot lines that were put forth in magazines. Like, oh, this is what we think it's about. And that was so interesting to me, Alex, because it it speaks to a whole different era of cinema. Yeah. And of, of life in the world. Where people were hyped to the point of theorizing about the movie 
for a weird movie by a real director. That yeah. does not happen anymore. Isn't now the only movies that people do that for is like these stupid clickbaity YouTube videos about like things in the trailer for the new Doctor Strange that you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like this garbage industry that's just, yeah, super clickbaity. And people don't do that for real movies anymore, I don't feel like. Or if it if it does exist, it's very in the background. Like it's not a cultural movement. Like you're not gonna see billboards for the next David Fincher movie. Yeah, not not in the same way that they did it for like Kubrick. And I I don't know, cause like you said, he had a heart attack, right? It was sudden, so people knew that he was old, right? But maybe it was the twelve years, and they were like, oh man, this is gonna be really good, blah blah blah. Like, but no, I love what you're saying. It it you would find this, you could find articles about this, like in the waiting room of your sex therapist <laughs> right. office right <laughs> like people would talk about movies like this and i think the raciness of the movie poster really got to people the idea that these two mega stars were married like these are mega stars right right and it's in the like, age where mega stars were a thing and it's like are we gonna be able to see the king and queen fuck on screen is that what like is gonna happen and Ooh. no less it's gonna be brought to us by Kubrick, the guy who brought us Lolita and, you know, Full Metal Jacket, Full Metal Jacket. The Shining. Yeah. Like, I don't know. The Master. So. You're right. It's interesting. It created this whole, like, perfect tornado storm of that. And then, you know, the Blair Witch Project came out around the same time period. And that was, like, the first time that the internet, they used the internet as the prolific. That was more like the underground movement, the grassroots movement of movie advertising, right? And here you have Kubrick and the studios being like, we're going to push this one. But it almost feels interesting to me because it feels like that was maybe the last era. 99, 2000-ish era was the last time that the movies were really what the movies used to be. Golden and big and like, I don't know. Into the early 2000s? Yeah, the only the only sort of analog I could imagine of this happening in modernity now is like if Tarantino stopped making a movie for 12 years and then started and then made a movie with like, I don't know, I guess Tom Cruise, right? Yeah, something. This, <laughs> yeah, right. This brings in another interesting topic of conversation that is sort of circulating right now where it's like, is Tom Cruise the last movie star? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the last like purely bankable name. Where it's like you go see it because it's the new Tom Cruise movie. No, I even know really mean. big known actors, it's like, who are the biggest actors? It's like Chris Pratt, Chris Hemsworth, some Chris's. Chris but even Pine. then, it's like you're not just gonna <laughs> go see it because it's them. It doesn't have that same, like you said, like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, the king and the queen. Yeah, dude. That shit doesn't happen anymore. No, like. Johnny Depp is one that I would throw up there as a close. Oh, member. not anymore though. No, but exactly. That's what I mean is that he came from that like generation when it was not easier to do that, but like when they were just like they had stables of young men and young women that they were ready to just pump out to be the next big thing, right? As far as looks go, as far as like aura on screen and things like that. Because like you're right, like producers and screenwriters used to be able to like just riddle off like a list of 20 names of people who they could get 
for a certain role, you know? And that would sell the movie. Yeah, like, no, no, 100%. Russell Crowe. Exactly. <laughs> and now, really, Tom Cruise is the one last standing person from both Johnny Depp's time era, like when they both were making their chops, and still has continued to this day to be the movie star. And you could put him in almost anything. Drama, romance, comedy, maybe not so much, but, I mean, it worked in Tropic Thunder for a little bit. And action, right? Like, the big blockbuster action movies. Like, I I don't want to say that any, any actor is bigger than Marvel or DC or any of the superhero movies, but Tom Cruise is. He could he's, easily... He's at least, like gives them a run for their money oh he could turn them down in a heartbeat and be like what are you talking about i'm making like 10 mission impossible movies next year oh oh like, you mean yeah he's not gonna join that yeah no that's what i just mean is that like he just has that gravitas to like just be like i don't know it's just like if they put him in one of those movies though it'd be fucking crazy it'd be pretty big <laughs> yeah even even with him it sometimes fails like i don't think american made did all that well but it wasn't the greatest movie but like edge of tomorrow was a great movie great sci-fi action movie that kind of bombed in the theater it, it found its audience uh later and it has like a cult following now deservedly so and mm -hmm. i think they're doing a sequel but even with him, it's it is kind of hit or miss. But he is the last one, and it's interesting because all those dudes from that era, the ones that haven't died, are still around. Like you have Johnny Depp, he still exists. I mean, even before this whole hoopla, though, nobody really gave a shit about him for the last ten years. Like he's made some just junk movies, and like nothing Johnny Depp did in the last decade has been really that yeah. you know interesting, or certainly that impactful in terms of audiences what about leo like he's not in big tom cruise style movies where it's like holy shit let's go see the new johnny depp movie <laughs> it's gonna be awesome yeah that's like, true no. like sean penn you go all the way down the list to fucking robert de niro none of these are bankable names anymore and de niro i would say is from an era just a little before tom cruise but like yeah i'm just rattling off names what about leo though leo leo is close yeah leo leo and pitt both. Leo and Pitt are like, yeah, they're the they're the 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 highest, you know, the the highest like watermark that some of these guys have been able to like claw onto and like. <laughs> and Leo stay doesn't at. really do the big blockbustery movies, right? Brad Pitt will still do, you know, like World War Z and movies like that from time to time, um, but Tom Cruise is just like. When you want that blockbuster, summer man. blockbuster, you know, movie, it's like, boom. Even, dude, I mean, not to rag on Nicolas Cage, because we love Nicolas Cage here at this podcast. Yeah. But he just took it in a different direction, you know, rightfully so and thankfully so. Like, his movies are great now, and his performances have been, like, just so different than what we were used to. But he was a bankable star for a long time, too, right? Like, and he was in some of those big-time movies as well. And it's like Tom Cruise has just stayed like, he's just like stayed steady, keep going. Like, I mean, dude, Pierce Brosnan even. Like Pierce Brosnan is a little older than Tom Cruise, but not that much older, right? But Pierce Brosnan is like an old man actor now. Like he gets cast in old man roles, which isn't bad. It's just where he is now in his career. Tom Cruise does not. Like no. Tom Cruise is <laughs> still playing very well. like... Like, dude, Matt Damon. 40-year-olds? Matt Damon tried 
for a little with the Bourne series, and he did well, you know, and he was in other actiony kind of things and drama stuff as as well. But now he's like, he's not the same. You won't see him sliding under cars and climbing onto airplanes and making big time dynamite movies, you know. But, yeah. but Tom Cruise still is, and I I don't understand. It's L. Ron Hubbard, man. It's all those yeah. The we have theorized before that he's like getting blood transfusions from Scientology neophytes Tight. or something like that, <laughs> which is okay. This is another point about Tom Cruise that is interesting to me is like how his acting career has completely just like sidestepped the fucking absolute weirdness that is his personal life. Dude, his he's personal invincible. Life. He's invincible and it's like this should have killed you. This should have murdered your career. It murdered, you know, Travolta's career. Uh, Barry Pepper, some other guys. You don't see him around much anymore after, the, like, the whole Scientology thing. Oh, I know. But Tom Cruise, he's like the fucking, I don't know, he's like the head of that religion next to some other guy. And somehow it doesn't matter. I, I know, man. It's like, it's, it's crazy. Like, Harrison Ford... Still a little bit older, but still was a big-time action star in the 80s and the 90s, right? Coming hot off the heels of Indiana Jones and fucking Star Wars. Yeah. Tom Cruise was in movies then, too. And <laughs> he's still going. Had humongous train wreck scandals, jumping on couches on Oprah, having babies, divorcing people. You know, like that keeping Katie Holmes all like locked up with the Scientology uh, influence and everything. Still fine. Still pumping yeah, out. Yeah, he's like Tom Cruise is like a movies. psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but he's like driven in this really weird way where he does his own stunts to a level that no other actor has ever dared. I don't even think like I'll give Jackie Chan the credit for like the kung fu stunts back in the day and making martial arts movies like really accessible to the West and whatnot, right? But Tom Cruise is like, dude, the climbing on the plane thing. He's like hanging off of airplanes and like hanging out on top of the world's tallest building with no anything, with no ropes. And like he's like tricking uh, grips and mechanics people on stage like, you know, like being like, I want to do this jump. The safety guy says, no, you can't do this jump. So then he finds a new safety guy. Right. And it's just like, Jesus. (laughs) Okay, Like, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. He's still watchable, though. Like, I fall for it, too. Oh, 100%. I'll watch his movies. Like, I don't think he's necessarily the best part of all of them, but he's a big reason why they're successful. No, I was thinking about, like, how this movie would have operated with another actor. Mm -hmm. I guess Johnny Depp was a big consideration, speaking of the J-Man. Yeah. That would have been interesting. It's a hard movie to imagine anyone else in. Harrison Ford was also one. Ford. Yeah, but Tom Cruise, he, I don't know if it's part of like his charisma, but just the fact that he always plays kind of Tom Cruise. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say he doesn't have range. He can be a very good actor. Like, my favorite performance from him is Born on the Fourth of July. Oh, really? I think that's like a really great performance. I think mine's Collateral. I have not seen Collateral. Fucking It's funny. I was talking to my friend Greg. Shout out to Greg yesterday about that movie. And I was like, I still need to see that. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. (laughs) Um, But regardless, 
he he has sort of fallen off into just like I am Action Man. Like he plays Tom Cruise in the same way that George Clooney plays George Clooney. Yeah. You know what I mean? They just have their their thing that they do. I know, right? And that's fine. That's totally fine. Totally valid. You know, it's funny because George Clooney's going to be coming up in this podcast pretty soon here. Really? I got yeah. I I picked my my next movie, so. Oh, okay. Well, we will. Well, we won't. We won't telegraph that because every time we say what movies we're gonna do, somehow we don't do them. He's coming like up. I'll just say that in the future. Okay. We'll get well, to I'm talk sure about Clooney. Is it? Is it? Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh no, I wish, but okay. no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about that All movie right. soon enough for sure. But um, I'm still stuck on this. This trying to think of other actors that could maybe compete. I mean, Keanu maybe. Um, in this movie. Oh, wow, actually. In this movie, 1999, Keanu, I mean, you want the dialogue to be a little more stilted than you thought. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it would be interesting for sure. Um, you know, I It'd think... It'd be like a blank slate for you to sort of... Yeah. ...project yourself onto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's Mel Gibson, um, who obviously was at one point a huge star as well, totally fell off, because he had scandals that ruined him, right? And his scandals were with a more traditionally accepted religion, which is hilarious to me. So, yeah, Scient- yeah. Scientology, if you, I don't know, good lawyers. Because people <laughs> are much more accepting of Jesus than they are That's of That's what Zenu. I'm saying, dude. And even anti-Semitism is, like, much more rampant than I thought it would ever be again in this country, right? And it's yeah, like... Yeah, it's like on the rise. Yeah, which is enough. fucking insane. And... I remember Ugh. his thing, right? He was like, he was known to be kind of like subtly or maybe overtly anti-Semitic, very Catholic, obviously, and also big drinker and driver, right? Got pulled over by that female police officer. Apparently he's like, what's up, sugar tits? And she booked him, right? So nice. Yeah. Classy, I mean, classy maneuver. I know, right? And very... That's that speaks to the area he grew up in, being a a, a megastar. Oh, one hundred percent, dude. You like, know, and it gets Burt into the two thousands. It's like it's not gonna fly anymore. Not unless you're at an eyes wide shut party. Yeah, exactly. You can't do that shit anymore. <laughs> I know. Um, damn, John. He was Travolta. like a self flagellator too. Like he would he would like hurt himself. This could be wrong. I could be wrong. Oh, I Mel. I want to say this is completely true, but Mel, yeah, he's like really hardcore into that idea of like hurting yourself to remind yourself of the pain that jesus went through yeah freaky shit dude those people are freaky as fuck yeah you know it's like every time i think of monty python and the people that bang their their heads against the boards i remember learning about that originally though like during the era of like the black plague you know when they're like this is the punishment from god we must repent and just like whipping their backs all day and everything and i'm just like that is a commitment that I will never, ever, ever get to. <laughs> they do that to appease God, right? That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like you, you, you hurt your flesh, or like you cause yourself pain, and you like live through suffering to try and like. It's not to emulate or sim. It's not to emulate Jesus's pain. It's to simulate it, right? So you can maybe have an inkling of what he went through. And also to sort of appease God for, in, a, in, a, in a similar uh-huh. way because yes. Jesus' thing was like appeasing God for his fellow man. Yep. And just because like we have a plague upon us, we must have done something wrong. We owe exactly. that, right? Like, 
It's Can you imagine having the depth of belief in something to where you're like hurting yourself for it? The human sacrifices that are known to occur like in some of the South American mega civilizations and everything. Oh, oh, here's a point that I wanted to bring up that I totally forgot about. In terms of Eyes Wide Shut, going back to this movie that we talked about. Yeah. Um... And like like weird, freaky, elite sex parties. There's this place not far from where I live in Occidental, California called the Bohemian Grove. Okay. Which is like very, very known for having like ultra, ultra wealthy, like elite people from all different, you know, walks of life. Yeah. Go there once a year and have like really, really freaky times. Okay. Um, and like there's a people have snuck in there and like captured on film these like weird ceremonies they do there's a lot of stories of like you know rape and human sacrifice and shit like that and that's like in my backyard Jesus. I don't know I just thought that was interesting and that shit's real I don't know what they do out there but um, it exists you know and the stories you read about it like people who have uh, I'll just say the stories that you read about it. You can go out there and check it out for yourself if you're interested. But it makes the eyes wide shut thing feel just so tame. Wow. You know, it's like just scratching the surface exactly. of what these people actually do. And, you know, this is like in a, I'm putting on my tinfoil hat here, but it would be absolutely insane if we found some type of concrete evidence from like Kubrick's personal collection of whatever diaries notes, you know, where he like was talking about how he was trying to kind of do actually scratch the surface of what goes on in these like ultra elite, you know, parties and things like that. I'm um, sure he was invited. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Right? I'm sure he went to like at least one or two. I'm sure there are plenty yeah. of very good normal people in Hollywood who have found themselves one or two times in a place like you know, picking up an hors d'oeuvre where they're just like, hmm, this is interesting, right? This is Soylent Green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, wellity, wellity. Uh, do we have anything else to say about um, no. the Kubrickian film I'm here? glad. I'm glad you watched it, though. It's it's definitely it's definitely a weird one, but not like like you said. It didn't didn't lean into it too hard. It's it was weird, not in the way that I expected it to be. Yeah. It was weird as a Kubrick movie. The spoofs have always made it weirder. <laughs> yeah, spoofs. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously been spoofed to goddamn death. Yeah, like I said, I knew the sort of crux of it, even though I'd never seen it. And it was my last, the last Kubrick movie I I hadn't seen. The last two were uh, Barry Lyndon. And Eyes Wide Shut. Nice. And now we've done both of them on this podcast. What do you like more, Eyes Wide Shut or Barry Lyndon? Oh, Barry, Barry Lyndon, right? For sure. You love Barry yeah. Lyndon. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting yeah. that we did, I think it's interesting we did those two movies. Because when you talk about Kubrick, there are a lot. There's one other one that I would love to do way back. Um, but, I mean, all of his movies, there's the mid-bulk, uh, excuse me, the mid-bulk part of his career that's like the shining example of like film study and everything like that, right? Like, it, was that a play on words there? The shining example? Oh no, actually no. <laughs> oh, you <Dang> fuck. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. You should have just pretended. Yeah, <laughs> so it would have been clever. I mean, it's part of that though, right? The Shining was like 80, 1980, I think, or seventy nine, yeah. 
And then you had Strange Love before that. Strange Love is like yeah. uh, 64. Yeah. You have Odyssey, Space Odyssey before or around that same time. So from like the 60s to the 80s, he was like really hitting his groove, right? And yeah, then, the only weird one out of that is Barry Lyndon. Oh, 100%. You know? Yeah. That like doesn't get it's it's not part of like the canon, yeah. you know. I didn't even know that was like a movie until you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. And then Full Metal Jackets in there obviously, but there's a movie called The Killers that I've always wanted to talk about. Um The Killing? The Killing. With uh Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden. Yeah. yeah. Great movie. Okay. But this is a 1950s era movie. Yeah, dude mid 50s yeah he didn't really have like the artistic freedom that he does now because in the 50s it was like the studios were the boss right like unless you were david lane or roman plant not roman polanski elia kazan excuse me and you were like bringing in big time fucking money you were probably just gonna like you can make your movie you can make your story but we're gonna confine you to this budget this length, stuff like that. So when you watch it, it's black and white, and it feels like a 1955 movie, but it's, yeah. it is so good. And Sterling Hayden is one of my favorites. <laughs> you must like that movie more than me. I think it's good, but I don't know. It didn't blow me away. I saw it earlier this year. Oh, yeah? Um, but yeah, and then he he sort of like, I think Paths of Glory the next year is much better. Oh, that but then movie like, is, he, yeah rose to prominence kind of with Spartacus, which is doesn't feel like a Kubrick movie at all. That's no. what I mean, right? Like the early part it feels, feels like weird. Kirk Douglas probably directed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then Lolita. Lolita is... I expected that movie to go deeper into its rabbit hole, and I'm kind of glad that it didn't, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it, it sort of lacked... Uh, it lacked punch because it was made in 62, and they couldn't really go deep. Yeah. Into into that horror, um, yeah. I think like Space Odyssey and Strange Love is where he really hit his stride and started making just absolute classics. Yeah. But you know, there's the good points to all his movies, all of them. It's a very small sample size as well. There's like twelve movies, twelve or thirteen, something like that. Yeah. All of them are pretty good. Yeah. At least. You know, and he changed the game. So props to the man. It's crazy that this movie killed him, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Is it worth it? No. I don't think it was worth it. No, I don't think so either. I think he had a lot left like, in the tank, probably. This movie is good, but, man, like, I couldn't see how it took 400 days. I really couldn't. I know. I man. was like, you you had other movies that look way better. I know. Barry Lyndon was like, I, looks way better cinem- like cinematog- cinema- cinematically, cinematographically. Yeah. I struggle with this fucking word. No, I know. Me too. With its cinematography. Yeah. Much more beautiful cinematography. And then like in terms of, I don't know, just complexity and performances and things going on, Full Metal Jacket and The Shining are like, they seem like they would be way more complicated to make. Full Metal Jacket, 100%. I'm like, oh, I could see that movie taking 600 days to make, right? Um, You have the elements, you have Vietnam, you have mud, you have weather. You have fucking a bunch of actors to keep in line. It's a war battle movie. You blow stuff up like, okay, but this one? What were you doing for 400 days? Right. It was just having them do 500 oh, takes of like my chest a guy in a mask a like tight. getting sucked off. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's like I could see some of those really complicated shots, like the blocking 
and all the stuff going on with like the people having sex, like those really long takes through corridors. But I, I don't know. I think I read that just some of the dialogue scenes. It's like just Tom Cruise talking to Sidney Pollock in a room. <laughs> they did like 200 takes. It's wild. And it's like, I'm sure any one of those takes to me would look just as fine. It's funny if Kubrick is in the editing room and he like doesn't want to go through all of them. So he's like, just take the first one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fucking infuriating. It's like there's that story. David Fincher is notorious for doing this as well. He does a shitload of takes. And there's one scene in Fight Club where Brad Pitt is slapping a guy. And he got slapped like a shit ton of times. They did a load of takes. And then they used the first take, <laughs> I think. The guy was super mad. Oh, that's brutal. It was either that or and or a guy falling down the stairs a bunch of times. He had a stuntman fall down the stairs a bunch. And then they used the first take. <laughs> Like, <laughs> shit like that. That's insane. All right. Well, on that note, let's get out of here. Real weirdos, one and a half white men with English degrees talking about eyes wide shut and things that are, you know, surrounding it for way too goddamn long. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see y'all in the next one. Enjoy your plums. Enjoy your sex parties. <laughs> Don't forget to bring a mask. <laughs>